Well, good morning. <clears throat> Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We're thankful that you're here to worship with us. Um, whether you are a member, a new visitor, or just new to church altogether, um, we are thankful for this time where we worship. And on, often we think of worship and we just think about the singing. And, and uh, IBC does a really good job with the worship team in terms of our singing. But uh, that is just one aspect of worship. Worship is our entire lives, and that's, that's kind of the transition that we flow into from the first three chapters, the first half of the book of Ephesians, to now we enter into uh, the more practicum, the, the working out, the walking out of faith that is in chapters four through six. And if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, I think where you might, your mind might immediately wander to is what does it look like to live as a Christian? And you might wander to all the commands, and it's understandable because there's a ton that come in the second half. In fact, consider this for a moment. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, there was only one imperative, one imperative. In other words, grammatically speaking, only one verb that was set as a direct command or as an obvious command. There's other ways to express things that should be commands, right? But the direct imper- imperative is the one that, that will naturally draw us to say that is a direct command of Scripture. Only one, right? It was in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, but only one imperative in the first three chapters. Then in the rest of the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, 5, and 6, we'll encounter 40. One imperative, first half of the book, 40 in the next three chapters, right? And of those 40, there's five times in which an imperative, a command, is also tied to the the conjunction, therefore. That's what we have uh, at the beginning of chapter 4. And whenever that command is tied to therefore, it tells you that it is not just a command that comes out of nowhere, but it comes within a context of all the things that we have talked about. On that basis, you need to do this. On that basis, there is an obligation to pursue these things. So things like walk, um, meaning live your life, right? Stand. Do these things, like all the commands that will be given to us, so much of it is based on all the theology that has come before. And that's what's so significant about the structure of the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. We start off with what becomes then all the practice of what it means to live as a Christian. In particular, what it means to live as a Christian Right? Walking in a manner worthy of being called a Christian. So as we begin our exploration in, in all of these imperatives, all the things that we have for us, we need to be reminded again and again that every command that is given to us in this wonderful letter is given to us with that perspective that there is purpose, there's foundation, and there's a rich theology. There's a reason why. We do and pursue everything that we do. Otherwise, it's just duty. And duty, devoid of devotion, becomes just drudgery, enslavement, and pain. We have a living hope in Jesus Christ, even as we sung about. And I think that leads us to these commands on how to live in Christian unity. That's uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I give you, it's a short outline Right? It's just the character of Christian unity and the foundation of Christian unity. But let me read to you 
verses 1 through 6, and we will, we will pray, and then we'll unpack it um, for our, hopefully, for our great benefit. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to sing and to pray, to consider who our God is and what our Savior has accomplished for us. Lord, may the meditations of our heart, Lord, just the praise of the fact that, that you have us, that you have bought us, that you have redeemed us, that you have rescued us, and you will preserve us to the end. May those thoughts, Lord, lead us to a perspective of pursuing godliness with great contentment. Let us think more carefully about how we ought to live. Let us be more thoughtful about confessing the areas that we fall short. Let us be more representative, Lord, of our Savior who has been so gracious, so loving, so patient with us. That, Lord, of all peoples on this earth, that we as Christians would be known by our love. And not by a love as the world would define it, not by a love as is characterized by others, Lord, or assumed upon us, but the kind of love that is like the love of our Savior, that loves in spite of receiving nothing back, that loves with humility and grace and gentleness. Let us pursue that kind of love, particularly in the body of Christ, that we might demonstrate Christian unity, that people would be drawn to it, that we ourselves would be delighted in it, that our souls would be fed by the fact that you have given us, Lord, not just individual salvation, but a company of believers that we might be able to pour into, that we might be able to receive from, and then more than anything, that we might represent Christ too. So we pray for your grace to us as we have been hitting so many of these wonderful themes that involve the body of Christ. Now, would you teach us? Would you humble us? And would your spirit apply these scriptures to us this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So as we have mentioned already, the, what has come before in the first three chapters is predominantly this rich an amazing doctrinal kind of laying out of the plan of redemption. Whether it's in chapter one and all of eternity, from before time began, before there was anything called a thing, when there was only God and his holy triunity, he determined that he would create a universe. But before he even began, he knew everything that would take place. And he knew there would be sinners like you and I. And he determined that he would call some to himself before the laying of the basic units of the foundation of this world. That's how early and how thoughtful God has been. And then as uh, it all unpacks to his great glory, we find out that the problem of sin is much deeper than we thought. In chapter 2, it says specifically, right, that we are not just, we're not just troubled by sin and occasional struggles. We are dead in our trespassing sins. 
that every human being is born spiritually dead, not spiritually vitalized, and then we sin enough that we kill it, we kill whatever spiritual spark there is, but we are born spiritually dead. An incapacity, an inability to do anything that is holy or righteous or right in the Lord's eyes, so that we all fall short of the glory that is to be in fellowship with God, our Holy Father. And what has been God's solution to this is to send his only son, that by grace, through faith, we might in Christ have his righteousness cast over us, have our sins placed on the cross, that we might be forgiven of sins that we, we absolutely should pay for in full. And instead, he pays for in full so that we might have his righteousness and live as if we are the children of God. Now, that rich gospel tradition needs to look like something needs to breathe and have personality. It needs to demonstrate itself as being so different from a mostly nice world. This has got to be better than a social club. It's got to be better than anything the cults can put together. It's got to be better than a philosopher's group, right? Or a neighborhood enrichment group. This has got to look better. The church has to be so much more significant for human flourishing, thoughtfulness, meaning and purpose, that merely we are kind of the people that kind of get together on Sundays. This is a family, and it's a family that Christ died to secure. And it should look like that. And this is what this passage speaks to. It speaks to living with one another in gospel-enriched Christian unity. This is what the church of Christ should look like. So we begin with the character of Christian unity in verses 1 through 3. Take a look at verse 1 there. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We begin with an appeal to walk worthy. And as we begin with this appeal, I want you to understand that the, that the transition from chapters 1 through 3 to 4 through 6, right, from kind of the, the, the theoretical, the theological, to its application in real life, it begins with this verse, right, that really is the theme for all of the rest of the book. It's not just for this message. It is, it is the theme that colors everything else that will come. Forty imperatives that will take place, all of them flow out of this particular statement. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, and we already, we've already talked in, uh, in previous messages about the background of Ephesians. It's one of the prison epistles. Paul is in jail. And even in jail, he wants to speak about walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, what I find stark about that is his circumstance is not a circumstance from which you should be talking about walking worthy, all right? If I'm writing to you, right, and I'm saying, hey, you need to demonstrate upstanding moral character. You need to live in such a way that brings honor to the name of our family, et cetera, and I'm writing to you that, but I'm in jail, there's something inconsistent about my station, my current circumstance, and the things that I am suggesting. But what that tells us is that it is not an issue of where you stand in the eyes of the world. Paul's a prisoner on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while a prisoner, and while suffering, 
He recognizes that there's still a potential to walk worthy. That to walk worthy of the gospel call to which you have been called is, is, is separate. It is not, right? It's not equivalent to whatever your current social, political, economical, right? Wherever you find yourself, that has nothing to do with the manner in which you might walk because of the Lord's work in rescuing you. So here's an appeal to walk worthy, an appeal to walk worthy that colors in the rest of the scriptures in the book of Ephesians, right? Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, and the therefore built together with the command that I urge you, that I beg you, that I demand of you, but in, an, in a but in a pulling way. This isn't the push and I command you, so get out there, go do that. But this is the drawing in, like I am begging you. I am asking you to be thoughtful about this, to put your mind and energy to I'm urging you. Urging you to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Worthy is a significant term. I'm not sure what comes up into your mind, and I'm sure something comes to your mind when we say something like, we need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, right? And you might think, well, it's kind of like representing my family name. I got to be careful. I got to, you know, I got to not get arrested or not do bad things. Right? I might bring shame, and, and we might naturally gravitate to the idea of shame. The term for worthy that is used here, axios, is a, is a term of comparison. It, it uses, that term is trying to, to represent how on one side you have this, and the other side you have this. A comparison of two things, and how, like in a scale, like one should kind of level out to match the other. This ought to match that. You get it? And if you think about it that way, the idea of being worthy here or the urging, the begging of us walking in a manner that's worthy means that you live in such a way. That's what walk means, right? It's how you get from one point in life to the other. It's your lifestyle. It's the living. Don't think of it so much as kind of this Christianized word where we just say, how's your walk, right? But think of it as how do you get from this point to the point that you go into glory? Like what does your life look like? How do you conduct your life? Not the where to, but the how. And if you're going to walk in a manner worthy, the worthy means that that you are going to walk commensurate or in a way that's equivalent to the scale being balanced out from what is on the other side. Our conduct is to be comparable, is to match the stature of the calling to which we have been called. So, what are we talking about? When we're the, clearly there's an emphasis on the calling because it says the calling to which we have been called. So by doubling up the term, clearly Paul's trying to put an emphasis on our calling. So what does that mean? Well, from chapter one, we have the concept of God choosing us before the foundation of the world. That's one verse four. And the fact that he has a purpose to unite all things in Christ Things in heaven and things on earth. That's chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And then in chapter 2, it speaks of God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, so that when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us live together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
And you see, so Ephesians 2 has said, you and your death sin, right? God is rescued in Christ for a purpose. So that when he raises us up in Christ and seats us in heavenly places with him, it would be a demonstration of his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ. That's what we have been chosen to be. That's what we have been called to demonstrate. Aliens, strangers, now children of God, intended to bring him greater glory because people are supposed to look at us and recognize like that individual should not be right numbered in the family of God. And yet there he is. There she is. And it will become evidence of the immeasurable wealth of God's grace and kindness towards the unworthy, the sinful, the individuals that should not be here. So if you understand this command well, Paul is not just saying, hey, can you, can you act better? Can you try to sin less? Can you, can you try to, you know, not use those terms or, you know what I mean, fall into these cultural kind of, you know, expectations? Can you, can you be different? He's saying so much more than that. He is saying of all the things that I'm about to lay out for you, whether it's the household codes or whether it's how you conduct yourself in the, in the house of worship, whatever I'm about to lay out for you, the thing I want you to know is that the overarching command is simply this. You've been called to something that is immeasurably rich. That's on this side of the scale. Now you need to live in such a way that is worthy of that calling to which God has called you. That, that, that actually looks like, is comparable, is suitable, is commensurate with how great God's grace has been towards you. Because if you want to say, well, I've been called and to be worthy, to walk worthy, and the walking worthy is worthy of his holiness, his absolute righteousness, his hatred of sin. Listen, that, that is wonderful that you're trying, but you will never get there. Right? Except for the grace of Christ that is poured into you by his death on the cross. And if that grace befalls you, then it's not so much about figuring out how to be a better version of yourself. It's about how to become a better version of Christ in you, of you living for the things of the Lord, of you representing his grace well. I don't know if you're catching the subtleties, but it's the difference between being in another religion and being a Christian. Every religion has demands upon its members for how you're to conduct yourself, at least publicly. Every religion has its demands about what it means to live this way or that way and how to walk in a manner worthy of the demands of that faith. But the Christian faith, the gospel-inspired Christian faith, demands that we walk in a way that displays God's grace again and again and again to his eternal glory. That's how we're supposed to walk. It means that we never leave that sense of gratitude that says, Lord, I don't belong here, except in Christ you have made me one of these. Lord, of all the people that I know, I don't know a sinner that is worse than me, but you have poured out your love and kindness to me. We never leave that space because it is grace that we're trying to balance out. It's grace that we're trying to live in a manner appropriate to, right? Not righteousness, not 
not holiness. And again, I'm not, I'm not putting down righteousness and holiness. These are the reasons why we need God's grace. But I'm saying the main thing so far in the book of Ephesians as to bring God glory is to bring God glory because of his immeasurable kindness and wealth and riches that he's poured out to us in Christ Jesus on the cross. And if that's the way that we will live, that, that, that character of Christian unity, it is about an appeal to walk in a manner worthy of that graciousness so that grace inspires our holiness, so that grace inspires our hatred of sin, so that grace inspires us to repentance, to evaluation, to rethinking our lives constantly. Why? Not because I have to by some duty of trying to live up to a standard, but because I want to. Because this is the immeasurable goodness of my God in Christ towards me. This is what it looks like for my heavenly and holy and righteous and just father to love me by casting his judgment upon Jesus Christ, the judgment I deserved. This is an appeal to walk worthy. And so when you think about walking worthy, if the first things that come to your mind is, okay, I need to stop drinking caffeine, right? Or I need to do this, or I need to stop doing that. And that's all that is your thoughts, And those are the secondary applications of the deeper thought that I want to walk worthy because I've been called by God's grace to an infinite glory that I could never earn or deserve. We're motivated. We're motivated. There's an appeal of walking worthy because the glory of God in the person of Christ. So that's the beginning, and we wanted to kind of bear down on that because that will flavor then everything else that is to come. Everything about the new life of putting things away and putting new things on is flavored by this singular admonition, this singular command. Man, because of all that God has done for us in Christ, I'm begging you to walk in a manner that is commensurate with this calling, this gospel, right? This this grace-inspired, this kindness-fueled love of God in Christ for us. This is the appeal. Walk worthy. Look like Christ rescued you. And what that means for one that has been rescued by the grace of God in Christ. The attitudes that will naturally flow out of right, this gospel, um, this gospel worthiness is in verse 2 and 3. The attitudes of Christian unity. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There, there's a litany of these, these, these attitudes, these character qualities that should be displayed in the life of one that has been redeemed and touched by God's grace. That, that's the point here. And it begins, and we'll kind of walk them through a little bit, but it begins with humility, gentleness, and patience. Right? It says, with all humility and gentleness and patience. And the added all emphasizes that this is like this, like this is so significant that we are pursuing all of it. Whatever it takes for us to be humble, to be gentle, and to be patient, bearing with one another in love. Humility is a term that I think you should be quite familiar with. We find it in Scripture regularly. Um, but as we examine it, like if we're talking about the church, and that's what we're talking about in this context, unity in the body of Christ, right? 
We're not just talking about individuals and their characteristics and how they relate to whatever, whatever circumstance they're in. That, that is certainly applicable. But here, in this context, we are still talking about the church. I mean, chapter 3 ended with, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so by the time we get to chapter 4, we're still talking about the church. And in the body of Christ, in the family of God, that is the church, one of its primary characteristics, if, it's, if we individually and us corporately are touched by the gospel of God's grace, is humility. Well, well why would humility be at one of the top you know, priority places in the list? Well, because pride, the opposite of humility, is a basis of great deep division. Pride is the reason why the Jews and the Gentiles couldn't get along. It's like, wait, you're going to go sit with those guys? Are you going to eat their food? Pride is what says, what says, how dare you talk to me? How dare you have me sit here? How dare you think of me this way, right? It's, it's the pride in us that says, there is something wrong with you if you don't recognize what is right and good about me. Or if you don't conform to my expectations, right? Then maybe you don't belong here. That's humility, right? That contradicts pride. Pride is the basis of deep divisions. Humility is the primary, you know, basis, the attitudes that brings entirely different individuals together. Because there's time we're going to bump into each other, we're going to say the wrong things, right? Answer is absolutely. But it'll be humility that helps us to walk through that, right? It'll be humility that helps us to bear with one another with grace. It'll be humility that demonstrates the same kind of characteristic that we find in our Savior. In Philippians 2, that great passage that speaks of his humility and how he humbles himself to, point, to the point of death, and not just death, not just the death that he didn't deserve, but a, the death, death on the cross in the most humiliating and horrifying way for the sake of those that he loves, for those that didn't love him. Like that kind of humility is displayed for us in Christ. So how odd and how unworthy, how unbalanced when we like exude in our pride instead of in humility like our saviors. Second, characteristic, right? Gentleness. Now I know the masculine ones in this room, like myself, find gentleness to be an odd kind of characteristic, right? Like, Lord, okay, humility, I get it. I could use more of it. Gentleness. Come on, Lord. You didn't make this man of a man to be gentle in the world. And it's because we understand gentleness wrong. Like we, we think of gentleness as, oh, it's a nice mug, right? Like, like we have to be soft. And, and, and that's, that's not what gentleness is. Gentleness, the term in the New Testament, is a word that is often translated meekness. And that's probably a better translation for it. It's the opposite of roughness. There's a difference between saying, oh, that's such a pretty mug, right? To saying, who put this stupid mug here, right? It's the opposite of roughness, and it speaks not just of being a pacifistic pushover, but it speaks of power that is well-controlled. Um, one commentator illustrated it this way. He says, if you have a well-trained dog, that dog is probably always angry at the master's foe, but is never angry at the master's friends. So similarly, the term meek or gentle it speaks to a person that is angry when wrong is done, but, but is friendly and kind 
when all is right and good. Jesus, right, in Matthew 11, says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. But we see him not gentle and lowly, but overturning money changer tables in Matthew chapter 21. He, he is not without power or passion. He is under control. See, that's what we mean by that word meek. In fact, the ancient Greeks used that term meek to describe what it means to break a horse. You guys know what that means? You got a bunch of city slickers, so you probably don't know what that means, right? But it means you take a wild stallion of a horse that doesn't want anyone touching it, getting near it and stuff, and you break him, not meaning like you hurt him, but you get him to get used to humans and accept, you know, human beings riding on its back. All that, he has been gentled would be the Greek term for that. He's been meat. And it doesn't mean that he's lost his power. I am terrified of horses. Right? Not like, oh, there's a horse, but like, dude, don't come near me, man. Right? Because that thing is huge. If the horse says, who's this fool? Bam, I would be dead. <laughs> See, you don't think that because you're watching all these people, like these elves and stuff, riding horses in your movies and stuff. Horses are no joke. They are super powerful. A 400-pound load on their back, and adult horses just be like, oh, wait, something on my back? I don't know. I'm just going to eat. Right? Like, it's so strong. You don't mess around with it, but they are power under control. Why? Because they have been meek. They have been gentle. And that's a wonderful illustration of what it means for us to walk in this primary characteristic of Christ. We are humble. We are meek. And these are, these are characteristics that I think is supposed to be displayed in the church, right? That's where the walking worthy amongst one another comes in. And, and if it is among the church, then it means that I am not just humble in my own kind of, you know, guru sense. Like I just sit in a corner and just talk, look, think about how humble I am or I look more humble and I look very gentle and meek. But it means that this is how I act to you. This is how you as a believer, a child of God, redeemed by God's grace, for his, the sake of the glory of his nature and grace being displayed. This is how you act towards me and to others. The third is patience. Patience is achieved. I like what one um, particular commentator, Honer, says. They kind of struck my chord with me because I, I didn't think about this. But he says, patience is achieved only by means of a true perspective of hope. And I said, like, What? How is patience and hope connected? And this is what he means. He says, like, like farmers, right? It requires patience for them to wait for the crops to grow and to bring in the harvest. For you, it might require patience for you to wait and to figure out what school you're going to go to or patience for you to wait and see if the Lord has marriage in your future or having kids in your future. It requires patience, right? Like the willingness to wait. That, that's what that word is about. And in the Old Testament, um, according to James 5, the Old Testament prophets waited patiently to see what God was going to do. In, in Romans 2.4, it says that God is patient towards us, towards, towards a wicked humanity to give opportunity for repentance. See, patience requires that there is hope on the other side. Patience means that we see a perspective that is much deeper than the here and now. Because if it's just here and now, I'm, I'm very impatient. All of our kids, we have four, Kathy and I, and we would homeschool. And um, man, that's when, and I know a lot of our families here homeschool, God bless you. But when you homeschool, 
that's when your tendencies towards impatience really demonstrate itself. Because I always thought I'm a patient guy. Like, I tolerate all of you guys, right? I tolerate all kinds of weird people, right? I'm, I'm, I'm cool with all kinds of people. But when I am teaching my kids, like, hey, this is how you do this, this math problem. And I show them step by step, you got it, good. Now you do this one. And then they don't do it. And I'm like, wait, wait, I, ju- I just showed you that. Let me show you again, right? Because I don't know why I have to show you, but let me do it, and I would do it again. And they still don't get it right. Then it's like, okay, then I've done all, I, I'm done. The failure is not with me, right? And the impatience begins. Perhaps it's at work or with your fellow roommates or in different contexts where you catch yourself losing your patience. Is that not simply uh, an expectation that they should do better and fit better in the course of your expectations and sensitivities? Patience is hoping for them to be better in the future, but not demanding that of them immediately. You think about these three characteristics, right? Humility, gentleness, patience. If we could just wear those, if we could just remember those, if we could pray for an increase of those, man, it would build a utopia in the community of faith, in the body of Christ that is the church. These are essential to Christian unity and cooperation in a church body. Because the opposite of them, think about what the opposite of those terms might be, right? Arrogance, roughness, impatience, those are natural deterrents to Christian love and unity. And they are natural diminishment of God's glory in the gospel of his grace. The fourth thing that is mentioned there is not a fourth additional, but it's a Uh, It's a participle that I think goes back to walking worthy. In other words, if humility, gentleness, and patience is kind of, you know, the uh, threefold, this is kind of the characteristic of us, then bearing with one another in love is, is what it looks like. Is like another way of saying this is what it looks like to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bearing means to make allowance, and it speaks to, to, to holding back or holding up something that is not your condition or is not your responsibility necessarily. To bear with one another in love means that you're making allowance on the negative for people's faults. And on the positive, it means that we are bound together even in the midst of differences. Because if, if everyone that you fellowship and express love to is exactly like you, then that's not Christian charity, nor is that Christian character. That's just you kind of gathering the kind of people that are your kind of people. That looks more like Jews together, Gentiles together in the New Testament church, than it looks like the new humanity that is neither Jew nor Gentile. You can still be Jewish and enjoy your Jewish stuff. You can still be Gentile and enjoy your Jewish or or your Gentile traditions. But when we come together, we are one new people, one new body, one new humanity. That requires bearing with one another in love. It implies that living worthy of the gospel, living worthy of the calling to which we are called, means that we are willing to bear with what is different and what is unusual and sometimes what is offensive in others. The, the, the term of bearing with one another in love is equated to the next one, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I like that, that it is not just bearing with one another love and maintaining unity, but it's, 
having an eagerness to maintain unity, having a desire, seeking an opportunity to, to make love and loving relationships the core of our identity with one another. We're, we're eager to it. We're, delightful, we're delightfully seeking that. We are desiring that we have relationships that represent, despite differences, despite potential offenses, despite the difficulties of trying to figure all this out, we are committed wholesale and eager to maintain our unity. Arkan Hughes says that the truth which radiates from verse 2 is that Christian unity doesn't begin with an external structure. We, we don't figure out a program for how to make people more unified in Christianity. But rather, it begins in the attitudes of the heart. Humility, mildness, patience, loving tolerance of one another, and an eagerness to maintain our Christian unity, to care for one another in ways that are explicit and that are intentional and that are so obviously different from everything else that the world encourages us to be. There are times on your team where you just got to bite the bullet, take one for the team, right? There are times in your workplace where you have to deal with the incompetence. Right? You have to bite the bullet, take one for the team. Our Christian unity is not based on take one for the team. It's based on what has Christ done for you? Is your life commensurate with the grace that has been poured into your life? Because if it's not, then how exactly are you representing Christ to the world? How, how are you building up and edifying one another in the body of Christ to think about how good his grace is, right? Like, like if, if everything in chapter one and chapter two, right, and in chapter three is, is all about what will bring God eternal glory and magnify his glory, it is his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. It is what he has accomplished to draw sinners and unworthy ones like me into his church family, into his eternity, into relation with it. If that's the glory of the gospel, how are you accomplishing that? Because all of these are about how to live commensurate in a way that equates to our Christian unity, not because I have to, but because I want to, because of who God is, because of what he's done. And I think that's exactly where we go to in point two. We've been looking at the character of Christian unity in verses one through three, but the second part is the foundation of Christian unity in verses four through six. And this is what I mean when I say this is where exactly where we're going to, because that first part is telling us about the characteristics that should exude from us as redeemed children of God who believe that we're not deserving of this, but Christ has been that good to us. Well, verses four through six then is about the triune God and how he and what he has placed us, what he has done for us, how that then develops the foundation of pursuing Christian unity. In other words, it becomes about God and what he has done that sets the standard for how we care for one another. Right? Some, some interesting and wonderful things that are said here. I'll read all of verses 4 to 6 as we try to unpack it, but it says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul in verses four to six, he, he establishes the basis of our Christian unity, right? And he uses that term one 
over and over and over again, right? One body, one spirit, right? One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, right? Who is over all and through all and in all, etc. right? When he uses the term one, in our outline, I'm using the term same, right? Because that's what he means by this. He is not just saying that there is one body of Christ, there is one spirit. That's true. But what he's saying is that we are connected in that. So he's trying to say in the body of Christ, we should think of our Christian church, our body, our Holy Spirit, who is God, the one spirit, not so much as he is singular, but that he is the same Holy Spirit to you and to me. This is the same church of Jesus Christ for you and for me. That is the same is what his emphasis, I think, is on when he means there is only one. He's trying to say that there is unity in the body of Christ. You belong here, and we are one. Why? Because of all these truths that speak of God, that speak of community, and that speak of the blessing, right, that comes along with um, believing in the gospel of Christ. We begin with the same spirit, body, and hope in verse 4. In fact, let me just I'll lay out all of them for you so you can kind of see how I'm trying to line them up, right? Because um, the second one, right, is one Lord, one faith, one baptism in verse 5. But notice the first one, I'm putting the spirit first because I want to line up the Trinitarian nature of the way that Paul kind of lays this out. It is the same spirit, the same Lord, and the same Father, right? And then the things that they have accomplished in terms of the body, in terms of baptism, in terms of everything, right, is laid out for us as well. And so when it comes to the Spirit and to the Lord, you have body and baptism, speaking of the community identification that we have, and then you have hope and faith, which speaks of the internal reality of what we share, right, in common because of the Spirit and of the Lord. But take a look at verse 4 first. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one body. We've already seen this thoroughly, right, in chapter 3. There is not, this is a Jewish church, and you Gentiles are welcome to become more Jewish Christians, all right? Similarly, it's not, this is a Gentile Christian church, and you Jews, you got to stop being Jewish, and you got to be much more Gentile. Start eating our pork. Come on in, right? It is one new body. Whatever that body defines is some of the norms and the cares. It, it, is, it is defined as one body, as one family, as one church. Not Gentiles becoming Jews, not Jews becoming Gentiles, but believing Jews and Gentiles becoming one in the body of Christ. So it's one body. But this is based on the fact that there is one spirit. And you think, well, why is body and spirit connected here? Why is the church and the spirit connected? Well, because in chapter 2, in verse 18, it says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Then verse 22 of chapter 2, it says, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Paul's already emphasized that the Holy Spirit is the one that redeems and cleanses us, sanctifies us, and brings us in to the singular body of Christ. The same Holy Spirit that saved and sanctified you is the same Holy Spirit that saved and sanctified the other members of this church. The same Holy Spirit, right, that has worked miraculously in calling you the most wretched of sinners to salvation in Christ is the one that has similarly called your brother and sister sitting next to you, right, 
to, to Christ. The same Holy Spirit, which means that we have a singular and shared hope. It's the same body, the same spirit. And it says, just as you are called to the one hope, the same hope that belongs to your call. Remember in chapter 2, it says that before conversion, the Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world, but now they have been brought near. The guys that are on the outside have been brought near, and that's us. It's not just a singular hope. It's the same hope. We have the same hope of the same salvation, the same relationship that we have, and all of it because of the same Holy Spirit working within us. Paul's point is, listen, there's a theological basis for me to call you to Christian unity. We have one Holy Spirit who's done the same work to establish his one church and given each one of us the same hope, all of us together sharing the same hope for eternity with God, right, in Christ. Well, verse 5 says in a similar way, in a shorter way, it says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. When, when the New Testament uses the term Lord, kurios, it is almost exclusively, almost exclusively using that to refer to Christ. Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so when it says, and then the Lord said, or the Lord did, it is almost always, most, the vast majority of times, speaking of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And especially if used, right, in comparison or side by side with the Holy Spirit and with the Father, it is almost certainly speaking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. And so here it's saying that the Lord, we have one Lord, one Lord that has provided our redemption, that has paid the price of redemption for us, has ransomed us. That's in chapter 1, verse 7. Is one Lord who has given us our singular hope. Chapter 1, verse 12. Is one Lord who is head over his church. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. It is Christ, the same Christ, the same Jesus, the same Lord that we all bow down to as our master. So he's saying, so this is a basis for unity. You don't have a Jewish Lord, and we have a Gentile Lord. No, we have the same Lord. And if we have the same Lord, then do we not have the same faith in that Lord? Ephesians 1.15 says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. In Colossians 2, 6 or 7, similar says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, Um, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. We have the same faith in the same Lord. That's the point. Maybe the interesting phrase that is there is one baptism. There's one baptism. Faith in Christ is identifiable by an ordinance that has been given to the church. I think this is talking about not just one spiritual baptism, which would be true, but I think it's talking about baptism, water baptism, as the identification of every believer into union with Christ. We have died with Christ. We are raised with Christ. And that connects us now to the church. We have gone public with our faith. And if you have been at IBC for a while, you have seen a baptism. They're going public with their faith because they're saying they're united with Christ, but they're not united with Christ in some individualistic and weird way where it's like, hey, I'm now united with Christ. Peace. I'm going to join the universe, right? It is you are united with Christ into his body. It's if there's one head of his church and we are the body, then that's why we at IBC, we connect your baptism to membership. 
If you would like to be a member of IBC, you have to be a Christian, right? But you also have to be baptized. You don't have to be baptized here, right? We're not that kind of Baptist church, right? You don't, you don't, you have to be baptized in certain ways, not necessarily. As long as you have been baptized on a profession of faith, you've gone public with your faith in baptism, you're welcome to be a member of this church. Maybe, maybe you've recently become a Christian as you've been attending IBC. That happens, right? And as a result, you would like to become a member. We'll, we'll walk through your testimony, et cetera, and then we'll say, hey, you need to become baptized, though, before you could be a member. And sometimes people will say, well, why, why would I need to be baptized? Because this is a public declamation, declaration of who you are in Christ. Is it, is it not curious to you that we have one Lord and Savior we have one faith in terms of what we believe, but we have a singular baptism for me, and I get to do it wherever I want. This is an ordinance to the church. And so the church, right, has responsibility to tie those things together. And that's how we do it. I, I think it's something weird and contradictory and unusual for you to be unsaved but baptized. Something inconsistent with that, right? But equally inconsistent is that if you declare that you are saved, but you have never been baptized, why you have not been baptized? Right? That's weird. It's unusual, because that is the first command, and even the, 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 the Ethiopian eunuch understood, like, hey, there's water. If I believe in Christ now, should I not be baptized? Right? Isn't that kind of what happens? Isn't that the first order of business? And by being baptized, am I now not supposed to be connected with a body of believers that is his body? One Lord, right? One faith, one baptism, one outworking ordinance that demonstrates that we have gone public with our unity in Christ, which means that we are now unified with his body. That just seems to go hand in hand. Let me give you the final one. Same father of us all. And I like how, how like, thematically, this kind of shifts a little bit, right? Um, because we've talked about the same spirit who's established the same body and has given us the same hope. The same Lord who's given us the same faith and the same baptism. And then we have one God, the same God and father of all. And that's it, right? Like, like I, would, I would have thought, right, and if I could give... Paul and the Holy Spirit a little bit of, of, you know, of writing advice, which I never would do. I'm joking about that, right? Then I might say, we could have kept this a little more parallel, Lord. Like, like, like you know, God, the Holy Spirit, you could have kind of instilled in Paul a desire to write one God and Father of all, and it said something about the body, right? And then it said something about either, you know, we did faith, hope, maybe love, right? Like kind of keep that kind of parallel structure going. And you know what the Holy Spirit says to me? says, shut up, you know, just look at the scriptures. This is how I wrote it for your good, right? And absolutely true. One God and Father of all. And in that encompassing phrase, it is to say that there is a singular God, certainly. But is that new to the people, right, that are these Christians that Paul is writing to, to the Jew? Of course not. Dude, that is baked into your bar mitzvah, right? And I I don't know what every Jewish young man does when they are bar mitzvah or Jewish uh, uh, a young lady when she is uh, bat mitzvah, right? Like, but, but the old tradition was that they would memorize in Hebrew uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, particularly the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. 
right? They were supposed to memorize that and more, but they're supposed to memorize that. In Hebrew, it's excellent, right? It's a wonderful thing for us to think about. So the, the Jewish Christians, to say that our, we have one God and Father, they would kind of go, okay, no, duh, right? The pagan Christians, I don't think any of them came into this faith because they wouldn't be considered Christians if they still thought, okay, we have a Jesus God and he's a separate unit, you know, deity, right? Half God, like, like Hercules. And then we have the Father God, who is what? And then the Holy Spirit God, which is like, I don't know, which is like more like an elemental God, right? Like they wouldn't be allowed into the faith if that's what they, they all believed that there was one God. Well, what's the point here? I think his point is that there is one God and Father over us all. And for him and for his glory, this is why we, we strive for unity. We have the same God and the same Father. I love that because it ties God and Father of all together as if we're talking about God the Father and he is the Father of us all. He's the Father of us all. To say that we have the same father over us means that we are family. That's like we, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be a depth to that, a, a sense of identity with that, a sense of acceptance with that, a, a call to remember in one another that we are for one another because of our heavenly father, the same God and heavenly father over all of us, over all of us in the church, right? We have the same God. We have the same Father, the same God and Father of all those that have walked in the faith in the past. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the apostles of the New Testament. This is our God and our Father today. And we have the same God. We can pray to the same Heavenly Father. That's why we do corporate prayers, so that we might pray together to our Heavenly Father who hears his children, brothers and sisters in faith. He hears us all the same. And the fact that he is father of us all is such a delightful idea because even when Jesus speaks of God's fatherhood versus our human fatherhood, he says things like this in Matthew chapter 7, 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, will give him a serpent? Right? I love that. I just think about illustrating that. Like, you know, little baby Noah says, hey, dad. Can I, can I have some bread? I'm hungry. Yeah. Put your teeth on this, fool. Right? I give him a brick. Eat this bread. Right? Or if Mike comes and says, hey, dad, man, I'm starving. Could I have some protein? Maybe some fish? Yeah, I got some protein for you. <laughs> right? I guess like, like human earthly fathers won't do that. In fact, this is Jesus' point. In verse 11, right after he says, what earthly father, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Why? Because he is father of us all. Right? He is not like your father, your human father, your earthly father, who has failed you at least sometimes, maybe has failed you miserably in the course of your life. No, he is the epitome of what fatherhood was supposed to be. He is our heavenly father, and he's father over all of us. And just to expand on the all of us part, it says who is over all, right? In other words, he is Lord over everything. He is through all, 
He is involved in everything and he is in all. He makes everything go the way that it's supposed to go. This is how our Heavenly Father cares for us. You know, it's an exhortation for Christian unity, certainly. But if you take it carefully, you recognize that the character of Christian unity is built on everything that Christ has poured into us. That the foundation of Christian character is, is on the Spirit, on the Son, on the Father, and all that they have accomplished for us. It is so little to do with bootstrap religion and how you need to better yourself. You should better yourself, but not in your own power, not for your own sake, not because you want to be better than others or that you want to be at least seen as being better than others, but simply because God is worthy. And so it brings us back to the first point. Walk in a manner worthy because he is so heavy in terms of his worthiness, we're, we're just trying to match in terms of how we live to honor our God who has rescued us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. May that be indeed to your infinite praise and glory for all of eternity. Lord, help us to live in such a way that, that, that seems to exude that, that it looks like we care so much about what you think of us, not, not by way of trying to earn anything, but because we are so thankful for every blessing we have in Christ. Lord, help us to live with gratitude and thanksgiving, with humility and gentleness and graciousness and love. Help us to bear with one another, encourage one another, build one another up, because those are the things that bring you glory, because it looks like you. Help us to live in such a way that Christ lives through us and in us for your glory, Lord. Lord, and we ask for those that, that haven't placed their faith in Christ, that you would be merciful to them to draw them to yourself. There's something so rich about living for you, Lord. Would they see that by work of your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.